keeping Don longer, I'll say that uh, my, my defense will be that he's a particularly good conversationalist and we lost track of time. Um, I also want to uh, thank Don, uh, especially since he had some trouble this morning. Uh, his flight got canceled and uh, flew through some nasty weather and such. So we are uh, particularly delighted um, to have Jay Don Moon um, here to talk with us about justice as social cooperation. Professor Moon is the John E. Andrews Professor of Government and Chair of the College uh, uh, of Social Studies at Wesleyan University. He has served as Lawrence S. Rockefeller Visiting Professor in the University Center for Human Values, Princeton University. He's the author of dozens of articles in political theory and the philosophy of social sciences, um, as well as a very influential article for me, um, What Would an Adequate Philosophy of Social Science Look Like? A seminal uh, article in that field. Um, as well as the uh, very influential book, Constructing Community, Moral Pluralism and Tragic Conflicts. Most recently, he's the co-editor of the book, What is Political Theory? And today he's going to be talking about justice and social cooperation. Thank you, Mike. <clears throat> um, I'll stand since there's enough people in the room. To... I want to begin by thanking uh, Chris and Mike for inviting me and making the arrangements for me to come. It's um, an honor to be part of the distinguished series that the Mershon Center has put together. The topic I would like to address today is justice as social cooperation. And since I've already circulated a paper ahead of time, I thought that in my comments I would try to frame the argument somewhat differently in the perhaps vain hope that it would be less boring for those of you who already read the paper, and uh, so we'll see. Um, I want to make a couple of large claims in this, this afternoon. The first is that the idea of social cooperation is central to Rawls's theory of justice. And the second, which I certainly won't be able to defend adequately anyway, is that he's right to make it so. By social cooperation, I mean following but extending roles to refer to a society or set of social relationships that is governed by or accords with, I use the word considerations, that are broadly accepted by and acceptable to its members or to those who are party to those relationships. When I say considerations, I refer to such things as moral and political principles and values, which of course are the focus of philosophers and political theorists and are central to Rawls's own theory. But I think we should also um, think about other moral sources as well, such as ideas of identity, common sensibilities and affective states, worldviews, and in general the kinds of narratives that people tell them about themselves to make sense of their conditions, orient their thinking and action, and ascribe obligations and make assessments. Obviously, all social relationships involve some patterns of coordinated behavior, but people's actions can be coordinated in non-cooperative ways, notably by manipulation, force, or other forms of imposition, where at least some of the parties to the relationship are not in any real sense willing participants in the relationship. There are obvious difficulties in trying to be precise here. Terms like willing, as in willing participants, are notoriously slippery. If there are obvious examples of imposed coordination, slavery, for example, or borders guarded to keep people in, or societies marked by widespread fear, uh, the idea of a society without any coercion is utopian. And force need not always or continuously be present in non-cooperative social orders. Sometimes the dominated know that resistance is futile. 
In other cases, <clears throat> as Isaiah Berlin suggests, the victim may prefer to have no responsibility. The slave may be happier in his slavery. Still, I hope the distinction is intuitively clear, at least in paradigm cases, so that we can proceed with it and see how far we can go. Now, the idea that there is a connection between justice and social cooperation is one of the oldest ideas around. A major theme of Plato's Republic, you want to be old, you have to talk about the Greeks, right? Is that a just society is a genuinely cooperative society and that injustice is a condition of strife and conflict. Socrates tries to convince Glaucon that a just person or a just society is a better life than, a, uh, than an unjust one. One of the most striking differences between the lives of a just and an unjust person is that the just person has friendships, whereas the unjust person does not. Uh, but note the direction of the relationship between justice and social cooperation. In Socrates' account, we aim at justice, and cooperation is one of its consequences. And this leads us to the problem noted by Rousseau, and I quote, Rousseau writes in The Social Contract, all justice comes from God, he alone is its source. But if we were capable of receiving it from so high, we would need neither government nor laws. No doubt there is universal justice emanating from reason alone. But this justice, to be admitted among us, must be reciprocal. Aiming at justice, in other words, is not enough. It's not sufficient. It will not lead to social cooperation unless everyone's understanding of justice is the same. Whether one's account of justice is rooted in religion or in philosophy, in the gods or in reason, the two sources that Rousseau offered us, people seem inevitably to come to different views of what justice requires. And these conflicts mean that, far from making friendship possible, Aiming at justice can become yet another source of enmity. Thus, Rousseau suggests we reverse direction and view justice in light of social cooperation. Instead of seeing social justice leading to social cooperation, we think of, social, think of what justice as defined by what's necessary to realize or to achieve social cooperation. Now, Rousseau's solution to the problem of admitting justice among us is to focus on the conditions necessary for people to have a common or general will, that is, to accept the same principles and laws. And famously, his answer, and now I'm speaking without any pretense of nuance, or, or um, uh, his answer is that people can do so only when they are fairly homogeneous not riven by conflicting class interests or cultural and religious ideals. In the social contract, he spells out a model of such a society, one in which the division of labor is highly limited, and in which each household head owns the property necessary to perform his, and I use the word his advisedly, role in the productive process. Um, thus limiting class differences. No one will be rich enough to be able to buy another. No one so poor as to have to sell himself. Um, the limited division of labor also means a small population uh, with limited links to the outside world and thus a narrow range of cultural and religious differences. And these common sensibilities, affects, and values will be reinforced just in case by various institutions, including a civil religion and the censorship, 
If a people is lucky enough to enjoy social conditions that do not produce deep conflicts, and if they have the even greater luck of a wise lawgiver to establish institutions which tend to preserve those conditions, then, Rousseau argues, they will be able to enjoy justice and civic friendship. Arguably, Rousseau's account of what is required for social cooperation is overly restrictive. Certainly, Durkheim thought so, arguing contrary to Rousseau that justice is the work of a society with a large population and an extensive commercial ties with other societies and a complex and extensive division of labor. That is, he turns Rousseau in his head in that respect. Needless to say, Rawls does not self-consciously follow Durkheim, so far as I know Rawls I mean, his, his, the word Durkheim does not appear in the indexes of any of Rawls's books. Um, but he does, like Durkheim, reject Rousseau's restrictive account of when social cooperation is possible and considers the possibility of justice under a variety of conditions. And like Durkheim, he sees the problem of justice as arising in the context of particular forms of social interaction and so views the claims of justice as dependent on the nature of those interactions and therefore possibly changing over time as the nature of those interactions changes. Now, those of you who know Rawls's main works, especially his theory of justice, may find this line of argument implausible. And I'd have to agree that this emphasis was not to the forefront of his earlier work. But I would argue that it is implicit in all of his work and central to his last book, Justice is Fairness, a Restatement. John has that here, so we can all look at it together if we need to. Um, he opens that book with a discussion of the nature of political theory. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> You're going to have the text to go after me, right? Um, the discussion of the nature of political theory or philosophy from which he moves immediately to the idea of a well-ordered society. And these two ideas, the nature of political theory on the one hand and the idea of well-ordered society are closely related ideas in Rawls's thinking. Rawls explains what he takes to be the role of political philosophy in a society's public political culture. He sets out four tasks, but I will focus only on the first, which is to help, in Rawls, Rawls's words, resolve divisive political conflict by uncovering some underlying basis of philosophical and moral agreement to allow more political differences to be narrowed so that social cooperation can be maintained, and I might add, or even enabled. I want to stress two things about this conception of political philosophy. The first it's, is its obviously pragmatic character. Political philosophy is a form of practical thinking or practical reasoning. It aims to address, address problems confronting particular groups of men and women at particular points in time. The second point that Rawls's uh, statement of the task of, is that Rawls's statement of the tasks of political philosophy itself asserts a value that is a very conceptualization of the nature of political theory, political philosophizing, uh, is tied up with the value of social cooperation. Central to his theory is the idea of a well-ordered society, a society, in Rawls's words, regulated, effectively regulated by a public conception of justice. A well-ordered society, Rawls writes, is a system of fair, a fair system of social cooperation over time from one generation to the next, in which the role of principles of justice is to specify the fair terms of social cooperation. 
Crucial to this distinction is the distinction between social cooperation on the one hand and socially coordinated activity, for example, activity coordinated by orders issued by an absolute central authority on the other. All social life, this is, I'm, I said this before and now I'm saying this in Rawls's words, or paraphrasing Rawls, requires coordination. Cooperation is coordination realized through rules or procedures that participants accept as, quote, appropriate to regulate their conduct, end quote, in part because the rules enable them to realize their own good in ways they regard as fair. As Rawls puts it, fair terms of cooperation specify an idea of reciprocity or mutuality. All who do their part as the recognized rules require are to benefit as specified by a public and agreed-upon standard. Reciprocity or mutuality does not necessarily mean that people benefit equally. Whether equality is required depends upon the publicly accepted standards, that is, the standards or principles of justice that are accepted in that society. Now, the obvious question this gives rise to is, where do these standards come from? And the answer, as you will suspect, depends upon the nature of the society or social interaction in question. Consider, for example, a case similar to the one Rousseau imagined, that of a fairly homogeneous society where people share an extensive, often, perhaps usually religiously defined, set of moral ideas, including conceptions of the ends of human life, as well as identities, cultural values, and common sentiments. Rawls says very little about this case, and almost everything he says about it is contained in his Law of Peoples. But these are societies in which there's a substantial, perhaps not universal, consensus on what Rawls calls comprehensive doctrines, doctrines which offer a vision of human life and well-being. These doctrines ground accounts of how society should be structured in order to realize human flourishing and to cultivate forms of human excellence. Such doctrines give rise to what Rawls calls common good conceptions of justice where the claims of justice are rooted in the, um, some view of the proper ends or goods of human life. In these accounts, the rights and obligations of individuals are derived from the role that those individuals play in a society unified around a particular view of the common good, or at least around an, uh, around an account of what Rawls calls socially shared priorities. Because different people play different roles and make different contributions to the realization of society's ends, their rights and obligations will often differ in important ways. These societies then are often hierarchical societies. But to the extent that the moral visions that they embody are genuinely accepted by their members, they represent forms of social cooperation. They are well-ordered and regulated by a public conception of justice. Rawls calls them decent societies. The idea of a society organized in accordance with a common good conception of justice is implicit in the commonly held view, one which I might add Rawls rejects, that political philosophy is a subfield of ethics or moral philosophy, the branch of applied moral philosophy that is concerned with political institutions and principles and that subsumes political questions, such as questions of social justice, within a comprehensive philosophical or moral doctrine that applies to all subjects and covers all values. 
I have already mentioned this conception. It's a variant of the platonic ideal, in which social cooperation is realized to the extent that a society is based upon a conception of justice that is in some sense correct or true. Just a moment ago, I suggested that decent societies tend to be hierarchical, and insofar as there are or have been any really existing decent societies, use a phrase that we used to talk about, really existing socialism, or at least societies that would be decent if their ideals were in fact widely accepted, they have been highly stratified. And so have many of the philosophical ideals of a just society, including obviously Plato's. <coughs> but accounts of justice based upon comprehensive doctrines are not necessarily hierarchical. Some theorists, many theorists in, in, in the modern period, have advanced conceptions of an ideal society organized around a common good conception of justice, including many in the civic humanist, communitarian, and socialist traditions in which equality is an important norm. As I suggested a moment ago, the problem with the idea of organizing a society in accordance with a comprehensive doctrine is the problem that Rousseau set out. People who hold different comprehensive doctrines will tend to subscribe to different conceptions of justice, and these differences can lead to conflict. It does not matter whether the comprehensive doctrine and its corresponding account of justice is true. If it is rejected by significant numbers of people, it will not be a well-ordered cooperative society, for its norms will necessarily be imposed upon rather than freely accepted by many of its members. When a society is marked by moral pluralism, when it is composed of groups holding conflicting moral, philosophical, and religious comprehensive doctrines, it therefore cannot be well-ordered in terms of a common good conception of justice because its members do not share a vision of the common good, by definition. If such a society is to be just, we need a different understanding of justice. The major focus of Rawls's work, most of his writings, if you put the stack up on your table, 95% or 98% of the pages, um, uh, the major focus of Rawls's work is to develop principles of justice for morally and religiously plural societies. Rawls argues that disagreements among those who hold opposing comprehensive doctrines are likely to persist because good reasons can be offered for opposing positions and because the issues at stake are of such complexity and difficulty that, in his words, it is not to be expected that conscientious persons with full powers of reason even after free discussion, will all arrive at the same conclusion. This reflects what Rawls calls the burdens of judgment. In invoking the burdens of judgment, he is not claiming that there are no objective values or principles of justice, but only that there are, in his words, many difficulties in reaching agreement on political judgments in view of the very great complexity of the questions raised, the often impressionistic nature of the evidence, and the severity of the conflicts they commonly address. Although it might be true that with enough, of course enough is like a fudge word, right? It makes it a tautology. With enough time and goodwill, we would be able to resolve these disagreements. We never have enough time, and in any event, we must find a way of living until they are resolved. 
Rawls's response to this problem rests on his conception of the practical tasks of political theory I outlined above. If we are to resolve divisive political conflict, given the burdens of judgment, he proposes that for political purposes we abandon the search for principles that all can affirm to be in some sense true or valid, since all such principles are subject to reasonable disagreement, and there is no prospect of resolving this disagreement at least within a time frame relevant for political life. Instead, we must seek principles that all can accept as providing a reasonable basis on which to order the basic institutions of society. It follows that we must be prepared to adopt principles that do not reflect the full content of our comprehensive doctrines, but rather only those considerations that are or can come to be shared by other citizens. Rawls proposes that we think of principles of justice as principles that we construct through a suitable procedure, an idea he calls political constructivism. This process is designed to yield a political conception of justice, one that citizens endorse not because it is derived from their comprehensive moral and philosophical doctrines, but because it provides a reasonable basis for social cooperation. The core claim of Rawls's political liberalism, of his own political philosophy, is that if people are reasonable in the special sense that they are, first of all, willing to live cooperatively with others on terms that no one may reasonably reject, and secondly, that they acknowledge the burdens of judgment, then they should be willing to accept the basic principles and institutions of liberalism in order to order their collective affairs. Let me emphasize a crucial point. Rawls defines reasonably, reasonable in stipulatively as involving in part a commitment to living cooperatively with others. <clears throat> it's a moral notion in a certain way. Rawls's own account of justice as fairness is an effort to work out and systematize the main principles of a liberal democratic regime and to show that it provides the most adequate basis for social cooperation under conditions of moral pluralism. Though he acknowledges that there may be other accounts and that different people in societies may find other accounts to be on balance more adequate than his own. One key to Rawls's account is its dualistic structure, or what Hugo Adam Badeau calls its institutionalism. Specifically, Rawls proposes a, what he calls a division of labor between two kinds of social rules. On the one hand, he argues, that the proper subject of justice is what he calls the basic structure of society the major social institutions which, quote, assign fundamental rights and duties and shape the division of advantages that arises through social cooperation. On the other hand, Rawls argues, individual actions must conform to the norms or rules of just institutions. The basic idea here is that if we desire to live cooperatively with others, but we disagree among ourselves in fundamental ways about basic values and moral principles, we need to find principles to regulate our common institutions, but we also want to be, quote, free to act effectively in pursuit of our own ends and without excessive constraints. Rawls' division of moral labor is part of the solution to this dilemma. 
It gives us principles to regulate these common institutions, principles that everybody can buy into, but it doesn't require people in their own comprehensive moral, in their own moral lives to accept those principles as principles that govern their, the, the, the ends of their own actions. Their moral obligations consist in uh, being required to conform to the norms or the, the roles or the obligations of just institutions. Now, Rawls does not emphasize, sometimes he doesn't even acknowledge it, but his solution to the problem of justice in a moral, morally pluralist society requires that its members must be willing to compartmentalize their moral lives, regulating some aspects by shared principles and others by <coughs> principles or values that are unique to them and to groups of which they are a part. Some may accept the principles of justice, some people in the society, which political liberalism advances as reasonable as part of their own comprehensive views. And others may come over time to modify their views in order to incorporate liberal principles of justice in them. And people who are fortunate enough to be able to do this will be able to live morally unified lives. There won't be any tension between the requirements of the public sphere and their own comprehensive doctrines, or their tension will be minimal. Rawls sometimes seems to think that this is not only to be expected, but is necessary if the society is to be well-ordered. But there seems to be no reason why citizens could not accept some version of political liberalism, Rawls' own theory, as the best account of justice in the pluralist society alongside of their own comprehensive views, even though they might not regard liberal principles as the best or correct or true account of justice, they could nonetheless accept it as reasonable under the circumstances and thus as binding upon them. Of course, this kind of compartmentalization may give rise to conflicts between one's comprehensive doctrine and the publicly accepted principles of justice, between what is one is required to conform to as a citizen and what one wants to do as a private individual. But as we can hope, as Rawls puts it, that political values would normally outweigh whatever other values oppose them, at least under the reasonably favorable conditions that make a constitutional democracy possible. Okay. I've so far considered the problem of justice in two types of societies, one in which members are united around a comprehensive doctrine, and one in which there is moral pluralism. There's no comprehensive doctrine everyone buys into. Rawls also considered, though much less fully, the question of justice in international society, a society made up in his view, not of individuals, but of politically organized peoples. International society is not characterized by a high level of social coordination among individuals, though it involves, nonetheless, consequential forms of interaction. Thus, it gives rise to questions of, of justice that are quite different from the other two cases. In the case of international justice, Rawls sets out principles to govern the relations among societies that, in his view, would be broadly acceptable to all well-ordered societies, that is, all societies that have some <coughs> system of justice that everyone within them accepts thus making international society a system of social cooperation among separate societies or peoples. 
there are two notable aspects of Rawls's account of international justice I want to mention here. The first is that he explicitly allows for the inclusion of hierarchical societies that do not accept basic democratic principles as full-fledged members of the society of peoples. The second is that he rejects the call for global distributive justice. Although he holds that justice requires a significant degree of equality within any liberal society, he denies that it requires equality between the members of different societies, even different liberal societies, at least so long as everybody in the world enjoys a certain basic level of subsistence. There's fundamental human right to a basic level of subsistence, but not necessarily to equality or to any kind of relative standing vis-a-vis -vis others. He thus breaks with the strong moral cosmopolitan position that dominates much of political theory and moral philosophy today. So let me now pause to take stock. I've been trying to explain the idea of justice as social cooperation by first contrasting social cooperation, where people willingly accept the principles governing their interactions, with social coordination, where institutions and practices regulate interactions so that the behavior of different individuals is effectively coordinated, but where those institutions and practices are not necessarily endorsed by those who are subjected to them. Theorists have always argued that justice is necessary to cooperative arrangements, but Rawls, like Rousseau, reverses the traditional direction between justice and social cooperation. Instead of seeking a correct or true account of justice, he asks how a commitment to cooperation would lead us to construct principles of justice which people could accept as reasonable to regulate their common affairs. And if I have outlined three different settings or contexts in which questions of justice arise and the different types of principles that apply in these contexts. Now, most of the written version of my talk is taken up with two objections to the Rawlsian approach. These objections raise important issues in their own right, and examining them helps spell out Rawls's project, enabling us, I think, to see its power and plausibility. I don't have time to cover everything I said about these objections, but let me highlight here two, a couple of key points. The first objection that I discuss in the written version is posed by G.A. Cohen, uh, among others. He objects to Rawls's account of political liberalism, and specifically the moral division of labor that Rawls, uh, that I just talked about a minute ago. In Cohen's view, the principles of justice should not only regulate the basic structure, the basic institutions of society, but should apply to our behavior as private or separate individuals as well. Uh, thus obviating the compartmentalization of moral life that's implicit and sometimes explicit in Rawls's own account. Now, Cohen is a radical egalitarian, as many of you may know, and he objects to Rawls's <coughs> proposal that inequalities in income and wealth are acceptable if they are necessary to increase overall economic efficiency, which in turn benefits the least advantaged in society. Rawls's endorsement of inequalities is a variant of the, you know, the sort of well-known, you know, a rising tide raises all boats uh, type argument that we hear in politics from time to time. Cohen zeroes in on the idea that inequalities might be used as incentives to induce people with scarce skills to use them more productively. And Cohen argues that this, in effect, licenses privileged individuals like Cohen, like us, 
to wrest more than our fair share or equal share of the advantages of social life. Such behavior would be normatively blocked if the principles of justice applied directly to individuals, since holding out for more violates the norm of equality and thus would be prohibited. In Rawls's system, by contrast, as long as the behavior did not violate the rules of just institutions, it would be permitted. Rawls' account of justice in Cohen's view, then, is defective in allowing for excessive inequalities. Now, there are many problems with Cohen's argument about incentives, notably his conceptualization of the problem of incentives is simply one of motivating gifted individuals and thus allowing them to hold the rest of us hostage to their selfishness. As I argue in the paper, this conceptualization overlooks some of the most important mechanisms that generate inequality in society, notably the way capital markets function, and it fails to recognize the key role differential wages and salaries play in inducing organizations and firms to economize on scarce talents. But even on its own terms, it is problematic because it fails to offer a satisfactory way of dealing with the leisure income trade-off. But its greatest difficulty is its failure to come to grips with the problem of moral pluralism, the problem that motivates Rawls's treatment of this issue in the first place. As I have suggested, moral pluralism makes the division of moral labor crucial insofar as it's through compartmentalization that we are able to reconcile the diversity of moral views within a society with a common set of principles governing its basic structure. To find such common principles, Rawls argues we must shift our attention from finding principles that we can affirm as in some sense true and discoverable by theoretical reason to finding principles that we can accept as a reasonable basis for social cooperation, appealing, in Rawls's words, to the political value of a public life conducted on terms that all reasonable citizens can accept as fair. In this conception, individuals may accept that the basic structure of their society must be governed by a strongly egalitarian principle, such as Rawls's difference principle, and support that principle in their activities as citizens, for example, by voting for policies that are designed to realize it. Nonetheless, they do not have to subscribe to strong forms of egalitarianism or believe that it is somehow true or correct. Acknowledging that the difference principle is a reasonable basis for organizing a morally pluralist society, they may willingly abide by the rules of egalitarian institutions but they may also be motivated to acquire the relative advantages those institutions permit in order to pursue their own particular conceptions of the good. On the other hand, someone like Cohen himself, whose egalitarianism is rooted in his own comprehensive doctrine, may be troubled by the inequalities that the system allows. Responding to his provocative question, if you're an egalitarian, how come you're so rich? He may give away whatever he acquires over the average level of income or wealth and take less than what he is entitled to under the laws of society. The root of Cohen's objection to Rawls involves Cohen's rejection of this kind, the kind of compartmentalization that Rawls's theory requires. Cohen, in contrast to Rawls, argues that political philosophy is a branch of philosophy whose output is consequential for practice 
but not limited in significance to its consequences for practice. Rather, the question for political philosophy is not what we should do, but what we should think, even when what we should think makes no practical difference. He goes on to observe that a theory, and he has in mind utilitarianism, but it could be any theory, might be fine for all practical purposes, but still be inadequate because it does not serve the purpose of formulating our ultimate convictions. And he criticizes Rawls, claiming that he misidentifies the question, what is justice? Socrates' question, you'll recall, with the question, what principles should we adopt to regulate our affairs? In Cohen's view, the principles that we should adopt to regulate our common affairs can only be decided in light of, and I quote Cohen, the principles that formulate our fundamental convictions. Clearly, the model he is invoking is one in which we first set out a true general theory, then specify the facts of our particular situation, allowing us to modify or specify the general theory for our situation. But that is just the procedure that Rawls argues is not available to us because the necessary agreement on the general theory or the comprehensive doctrine is not forthcoming in a society marked by moral pluralism. And acting on that proposal would be to precipitate a form of social conflict that would be inimical to democracy and to social justice. The second objection to Rawls' account that occupies much of my paper focuses on his rejection of the call for global distributive justice, this kind of international justice. In Rawls' account, the global distribution of income and wealth does not raise questions of social justice because it does not result from a basic structure at the global level that determines the life chances of all of the people in the world. Rather, our life chances are fundamentally determined by the basic structures of the individual societies of which we are members and to whose institutions we are necessarily subjected. Thus, each of us has claims of justice against other members of our society, since a society, and a society implicitly is defined by the existence of a basic structure in this view, represents a system of social coordination that can only become cooperative or well-ordered if its members share principles of justice. But we do not have claims of social justice against members of other societies since we do not participate in a basic structure with them. So it's what gives rise to a claim of social justice is our participating together in a structure of social coordination that determines our life chances. And if we don't participate, if we, if we live autarkic or, or separated lives, then there are no claims of social justice that arise between us. Now, of course, there are obviously important interactions at the global level, but they are largely mediated, Rawls argues, through membership in particular societies or peoples. International trade and investment flows are regulated by states and agreements among states, and without denying their importance for individuals, their significance is distinctly secondary to the institutions and policies of one's own society. Strong moral cosmopolitans, people like Chuck Bites, reject Rawls's arguments, many finding them outrageous. Some of the, some of the reviews of a lot of people are just sort of amazing when they talk about Rawls's endorsement of ethnic cleansing. And anyway, I, I, mean, I, I realize that there's a lot of problems with a lot of people, but 
the Rawls does not endorse ethnic cleansing. Uh, they argue that modern morality is universalist, even if it makes room for special obligations and relationships, you know, even if it's okay to save your children when they're drowning rather than somebody else's child. Um, it does not allow for morally arbitrary differences in the life chances of different individuals. And what could be more morally arbitrary than being born in one country as against another? They ask, how can the foremost theorist of liberal equality retreat from such elementary principles? How can he endorse a world in which there are significant inequalities of life chances merely based upon nationality? Now, part of the disagreement between the Cosmopolitans and Rawls turns on the broadly empirical and conceptual issue of just what it takes for a set of institutions to constitute a basic structure and whether Rawls is correct in denying that there is a basic structure at the global level. Certainly, Rawls's discussion of this matter is too schematic to be satisfactory. He cites Landis's book, The Wealth and Poverty of Nations, and asserts that, the, quote, the crucial element in how a country fares is its political culture, its members' political and civic virtues. So I, I want to set that issue aside I think it's that that issue doesn't really affect the normative concern. Even if we suppose that Rawls is wrong and that there is a basic structure, then it seems clear that Rawls's own procedure and Rawls's own argument would therefore call for global distributive justice. And if we imagine that the world is on a trajectory of globalization, and as globalization increases, we would then imagine that a theory like Rawls's would she argued that maybe global distributive justice was not a moral demand at point in time T1, but has come to be a demand at point in time T3. And that seems to me to be uh, correct. Suppose, though, that, that there is a global basic structure today. Uh, Rawls's, as I said, Rawls's theory calls for it to be organized in accordance with principles of justice. The problem is but it's not obvious that this call can be answered. For it is at least arguable that at the global level, the extent of moral and religious pluralism is so great that the set of acceptable principles of justice is empty. In other words, that there would be no adequate basis for social cooperation at the global level. Now, that's not to say that there are no universally acceptable moral principles, or even that there are no universally accepted moral principles. One of the most promising developments of recent years is the emergence of an international human rights regime, a development that figures prominently in Rawls's account. And in recent weeks, we have seen something of a global moral consensus in the response to the Indian Ocean tsunami. But the universal acknowledgement of the value of relieving human suffering or respecting certain basic human rights falls well short of the level of moral agreement necessary to structure the fundamental institutions of a society, those which, quote, assign fundamental rights and duties and shape the division of advantages that arises through social coordination. Now, in making this argument, I'm going beyond anything Rawls has said, and it might be argued that I'm going against his own procedure, since, after all, the bulk of his work focuses on showing how reasonable people could come to agree on principles of justice, specifically liberal principles, in spite of moral pluralism. But the scope of Rawls's argument for liberal principles of justice is limited. 
To be sure, rejecting liberal principles in Rawls's view is unreasonable in the specific sense that Rawls and others use the term. That is, uh, accepting the burdens of judgment and being committed to living cooperatively with others. But rejecting liberalism is not unreasonable in the usual sense of the word. That is, it's not irrational, and it may well be based upon moral ideals whose power or appeal we can appreciate, even if we do not share them. Of course, it is unreasonable in the sense that, it is, that it's uncooperative to insist upon one's own moral vision when others do not share that vision. But there's nothing in Rawls's theory that shows or could show Indeed, it's not even structured to show such a thing that the value of cooperation as he defines the term trumps all other values, or the value of reasonableness. Liberals tend to think that liberalism cannot be reasonably rejected, but as Rawls himself recognizes, albeit in a hesitating way, that is just not true. Or rather, that it's only true in a trivial sense that depends upon his own stipulative definition of the, of the term reasonable. If this line of argument is correct, it suggests that perhaps we should be relieved that there is no global structure. Uh, since if there were, we would have to resign ourselves to living in an unjust world, not unjust in the way that the world is now, which at least is in principle remediable, but in a world even lacking in uh, a world that's lacking in principles of justice up to which the world could live if it tried, if everyone behaved themselves properly. From the point of view of strong moral cosmopolitanism, of course, it makes no difference. For them, the world is unjust because it does not conform to their principles. But their own position is subject to a certain moral paradox. Insofar as they insist that justice requires that certain rights be universally accorded, including democratic rights and the egalitarian claims of distributive justice, but democratic processes can only be sustained when people see themselves as citizens and accept the basic principles of freedom and equality. And in many areas of the world, there may be no basis for democratic self-government, and adherence to this view would require that democratic institutions be imposed in those areas without explaining how that is either possible or consistent with the ideals of, of moral cosmopolitanism and democracy itself. Now, I would not wish to suggest for a moment that recent American foreign policy is genuinely motivated by moral cosmopolitanism, but the language of democracy and freedom is often rhetorically invoked to justify those policies. If we think about that rhetoric seriously for a moment, we don't have to look hard to see this moral paradox in action. Okay. I hope I have said enough to convince you of the centrality of social cooperation to Rawls's theory and how it is key to answering some of the most important criticisms to which his theory has been subjected. That's not to say you necessarily find the answers satisfactory, but you see how the answers would go. Let me close by responding to an alternative view of the demands of social justice, one that focuses not on social cooperation, but on the use of coercion, or at least the use of legitimate coercion, a view that has recently been urged by Michael Blake, who I gather is, will be in their series later on, um, and by Thomas Nagel. In their accounts, what gives rise to the demand for social justice within a group of people 
is not the fact that their life chances are fundamentally determined by the structure of social coordination to which they are subject, but by their subjection to specifically political authority, understood in the Weberian sense of a social institution claiming a monopoly of the legitimate use of force or violence in a particular territory. Nagel specifically cites Hobbes, arguing that the duties of justice follow from the existence of sovereign power, and Blake's Blake puts the point succinctly. Coercion, not cooperation, is the sine qua non of distributive justice. Now, clearly, there's a significant overlap between these two views, since the state or political authority is unquestionably part of any basic structure, a structure assigning fundamental rights and duties and shaping the division of advantages that arises through social coordination. A great deal of social theory tacitly or even explicitly supposes that any system of social coordination will necessarily include a state, along with other social institutions such as systems of property, rights, markets, and family systems. Indeed, it might be thought that economic and other social institutions are stable and effectively only when their norms are enforced by a political authority, so that the scope of coercion and the scope of cooperation have to coincide. But even if that is normally the case, it is certainly possible for systems of coordination to exceed the boundaries or the scope of any particular political authority. Consider, an example, the interdependence of contemporary European societies. When this uh, growth of this, the scope of coordination exceeds the scope of, of the state, when that happens, it may lead people to create new political authorities to manage the system. Once again, I cite the example of the European, uh, European societies in the European Union. But as the example of contemporary Europe also suggests, the overarching authorities need not be traditional states, claiming or exercising a monopoly of the legitimate use of force. European law is not enforced by a European army or European police. And as the European example also suggests, as the degree of social coordination uh, increases, so do the claims of social justice manifested in the European case in regional funds and special uh, subventions to relatively poor areas to bring them up to uh, EU standards. Thus, I agree with Blake and Nagel that being subjected to political authority is sufficient for claims of social justice, but I would reject their claim that it is necessary. Non-political institutions can be effectively imposed upon participants even when they are not legally enacted or coercively enforced. When these institutions constitute a system, a basic structure that effectively controls the distribution of the advantages of social life and shapes our identities and aspirations, they must be subject to the same demands for legitimation as specifically political institutions. Non-political institutions are not natural processes, simply parts of our environment like the weather or geophysical forces. Like the state, they have an intentional character. They are defined by norms specifying various roles and the obligations and privileges attached to them. It is an old and much exposed error of liberalism and social contract theories generally that in their focus on the state, they simply assume a host of background institutions as in some sense natural and therefore not in need of justification. Taking this background for granted, they demand that political intervention, notice the term intervention like this, is the social world here that's all by itself and, and we've got to justify intervention into that social world must be justified. But there is no natural background. 
One of the great virtues of Rawls' account of justice as social cooperation is that it enables us to think about social justice in a way that does not beg the key issues we must face, in particular the fact that our fates are largely determined by social and not merely political institutions, and the structure of those social institutions must also be legitimated. I have not had time to address some of the more, most important objections that may, may be made to a theory of justice that turns on the idea of social cooperation. I have only touched upon the problem of radical disagreement and the attitude that it requires us to take towards a situation in which cooperation is impossible. On the account I have given, in such situations, social justice would be impossible, not simply in the sense that it cannot be fully realized, but in a more radical sense that there is no set of principles whose realization would constitute social justice. There's no there there to quote uh, Gertrude Stein. I have suggested that this might be our fate if some of Rawls's critics are correct in claiming that the, at the level of interdependence in the world today is so great that the world can be characterized as possessing a single basic structure. How are we to respond to such a condition of justice, injustice, and what guidance could a theory of justice and social cooperation offer for such a world? Uh, that's a question that we have to take up another time. Thank you. Yes. Um, I wanted to pick up on the international justice aspect of the paper and talk. And, uh, I mean, you uh, defend Rawls's rejection of the strong cosmopolitan argument on the grounds that either there is fundamental disagreement about basic structure or there is no basic structure at all. Um, and I guess I'm wondering whether that is really what's going on in rejecting the cosmopolitan argument. It seems to me that in the West especially, the problem is that we, in, as members of rich countries and so on, privileged countries, don't want to give outsiders, even liberal outsiders, any say over our policy, the right to emigrate freely into our country, and so on. That basically, it is our attachment to sovereignty um, that is makes it difficult to argue for a cosmopolitan viewpoint. And, and the reason that we're attached to sovereignty is that our sovereignty protects privilege. It protects our freedom of action in the world, and the right to exclude people keeps us wealthy. Um, think about the Mexican situation. It's more or less liberal society. Why shouldn't they be able to just join us if they want to and so on? So I guess I'm wondering, from a liberal perspective, how does one justify the retention of sovereignty which comes down, in my mind, to the right to kill and the right to exclude the outsiders. How does one justify that? Basically, how does one constitute the boundaries of the society from a liberal perspective that recognizes global, the global situation? Yeah, well, let me, let me give you what I understand to be Rawls's answer to that question, because I think that he's... Um, the law of peoples, Rawls's theory of justice at the international level is... Uh, a version of what he calls ideal theory, in which he is the, an ideal theory differs from non-ideal theory in the assumption that there's going to be compliance with the principles of justice so arrived at. And in ideal, in the ideal theory, he includes uh, Rawls's theory includes the idea that people have s certain fundamental basic rights, so that uh, and including the right to subsistence. Under these circumstances, the Rawls argues that as an empirical, as a matter of fact, 
uh, immigration flows or migration flows of the sort that we see in the world today wouldn't exist. These flows are largely generated by the uh, by the fact that living conditions are so desperately bad in so many parts of the world. We already see this in, as you mentioned, Mexico, where increasingly the migration are coming from the, Chiap from the southern part of Mexico and even from some of the Andean countries rather than from the northern parts of Mexico where living standards have improved significantly. So um, under those circumstances, the right to migration would not be would not raise problems of justice in the way that they raise that, that they are raised in the world that we have today. So, at a level of ideal theory, Rawls endorses the idea that society can control the uh, processes of migration across its borders, but doesn't think that this raises particularly difficult questions because the the demand for migration will be sufficiently low that, that it won't raise the kinds of social problems of the sort that you were mentioning. So he tries to, perhaps you might say, evade the question. Or not, I, don't think it's, it's, I don't think it's an evasion. At the, at the level of ideal theory, I think that this, this argument is not an implausible argument. Um, what, how we deal with this... Okay, so that's one, mention, one aspect of the idea of sovereignty. The other aspect of the idea of sovereignty is just the right to kill people. On the outside. Outsiders. Yeah, and of course, <coughs> Rawls famously objects to, doesn't want to use the word states when he talks about the law of peoples, precisely because he wants to deny the traditional idea of sovereignty in that sense. That is, that the, he wants to argue that states are subject to certain kinds of principles of justice that specifically exclude the right to kill people, particularly the right to use war as an instrument of national policy, so that... Uh, uh, and, and so forth. So, so I think that both the on the area of migration and the area of of um, the use of, of, of violence towards outsiders, the level of ideal theory basically I think Rawls would endorse the kind of position that you take. Then that means giving up the institution of sovereignty. Well, the institution of sovereignty. Yeah, that is to say that he wants the the kinds. He, he does agree that the states, actually he doesn't say much about it, but he does agree that states have a right to control migration across their borders. But uh, I, th I think he takes it for granted that, that, that this won't raise questions, of, serious questions of injustice of the sort that we see in the world today because there won't be the kind of people struggling to get in in a world where everybody's subsistence needs to be met. As to the sovereign rights of the use of, of military force, he absolutely wants to give those up, and he explicitly insists that, that those traditional forms of sovereignty in realpolitik uh, are not acceptable and are just law of peoples. Yeah. I wanted to take off from the notion of whether or not this, in a world where everyone's subsistence needs were met, then the problem of sovereignty in, in the, the first half of what. Alex was talking about goes away because I'm I'm troubled by what on earth subsistence could conceivably mean. There are there are virtually nobody in Mexico who who suffers subsistence threats in the literal meaning of that word. Um, and if it's not the literal meaning, there are people in Darfur that would therefore have a justice <laughs> claim. Um, not very many people 
exception to some of the indigenous communities in the north, actually, where actual starvation, for example, would be, yeah. would be the issue. That's not the issue. The issue is poverty. They're washing poverty, but apparently that's not subsistence. Um, or if it is, then how much poverty? Yeah. And isn't then doesn't then subsistence become a moving target that's socially defined and socially defined by whom? Such that how can we know when in fact we have a justice claim or not? Yeah, yeah, excellent question. Really, really. Yeah. And this one of the most one of the least satisfactory parts of the Wallace's discussion of this this issue is is the that there's no account of where do these human rights come from. Uh, I argue that the concept of human rights is tied to the idea of a well-ordered society that is a cooperative society. And, um, and, and that we have to think about the, this notion of the cooperative society as a society in which people are willing, willingly participants, willing participants. And what it means to be willing participants is to have some capacities for agency that are capable so that there's a sense in which you have the capacity for understanding the situation that you're in, making choices about it, and so forth. The notion of agency here is a weaker notion than the notion of autonomy. It doesn't necessarily require a capacity for critical reflection on going all the way down into uh, your moral things. It doesn't, it's not opposed to a Kantian idea of heteronomy, yeah, but it, it does rec so it's a weaker notion of, um, of freedom than, than autonomy, but it's nonetheless um, a, a distinctive notion. And the level of subsistence the right of subsistence then has to refer to the kinds of goods that one has to have access to in order to be able to effectively exercise some capacities for agency. So I think that goes well beyond the, you know, the 1,600 calories a day, beans and rice, or <laughs> vitamin C, or whatever it is that, that keeps you from having scurvy. Um, it would require some access to some degree of education, some degree of, of uh, literacy, and so forth. Um, it probably does involve some, it probably is socially relative in a certain, in a way that uh, it is the, the kinds of opportunities one might have to have in a industrial society to be able to have effective agency might be different from what it would be in a predominantly agricultural kind of society. But I think that it provides, this provides a framework within which we can try to assess questions like that. And so I think that uh, the kind of poverty that characterizes you know, people who have suffered from extremely high levels of unemployment and so on, uh, and so forth that are motivating because of migration flows from Latin America or from the North Africa and the Middle East into Europe uh, qualify as violations of the right of subsistence glossed in that way. Now, this is purely I'm, this is my construction on Rawls. As I mentioned in my paper, I'm offering. I want to think about what Rawls is arguing here, but I also want to make to, to reconstruct that argument in a way that makes it seem more plausible. So, does that sound like a, a line of argument? That yeah, I know. It's very interesting. Mm -hmm. yes, I'm going to ask a question for the same part of the paper. Um, I think partly because I find the bites kind of critique persuasive. Like to me, the bites? The bites critique. I mean, it seems to me like the logic of the argument does push you to think the Devon's principle should apply. Um, and so because there is a basic structure. Well, well, two, so I want to ask you two questions about your two defenses of it. And the first is, if you think about 
um, like global capitalist relations and think about the kinds of interdependencies they create and the kinds of mutual vulnerabilities they create. They don't look like a basic structure, right? Because there's no state, there's no political authority that controls them. But it seems to me they do the same kind of thing, right? They distribute benefits and burdens in ways that affect people who are sort of tied up in these relationships. Yeah. And it seems to me like the point of the basic structure being so important is because of what it does, not because of the institutional forms it takes. Yeah. I so totally I agree. think that therefore, you know, I think so that for that reason I think that Bites line of argument is persuasive. On the question of too much Can I just say I mean, I, I, oh, I totally yeah. agree with you. I think that the basic structure has to be defined functionally. It is what's in significant case, about yeah, it has to do case, with its impact on people's life chances. So in which case I think that there's not really a good response to the cosmopolitan critique that's consistent with the principled nature of the argument. You know, unless you're going to deny that these kinds of interdependencies are important or distribute benefits and burdens, which I think that would be very hard to do. It would take you know, lots of you know, lots of empirical evidence. I, I think that would be so I don't think, I don't find, yeah, I find the vice persuasive, the vice <laughs> persuasive. On the question of too much pluralism, which was the other concern. Now, I might be remembering wrong, but I didn't think Rawls really had an answer to the problem of coercing the unreasonable, right? I thought that within, like, the, the context of one political society, he sort of says, well, yeah, you end up coercing those people who are so committed to a comprehensive doctrine that other, you know, that others can't, in principle, accept. But that's the best you can do. So why isn't that acceptable internationally as well? Um, Unless I, re I remember well, but I thought we were, it was okay to coerce people. Right. Well, in fact, he has actually a bloody-minded statement in political liberalism where he actually, he, it, 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 it's just so uncharacteristic of, of Rob. And if you ever met Rawls, you just never imagined that he would. I mean, he compares them to. I mean, he used really bad language. But these are people just have to destroy. Right? So there could be someone very committed to. Disease, exactly, right. Yeah, but, you, but you, the way you framed it, there could be someone who's committed to a value system that isn't reasonable in the very specific sense of which Rawls uses that word, but that we could look at them and sort of without accepting the belief system, understand why someone might hold it. And I thought that the solution was no solution, you know, too bad. They can withdraw or whatever, yeah. but they will be coerced by Yeah, well, I think to start with the second yeah. part of your question, I think the, the Rawls's answer, and I, um, I don't think that Rawls, 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 as I've mentioned in my, in my talk and in my paper, never, so far as I know, explicitly formulates this thing, well, what if there were a basic structure? Then where, where does right. the theory go? And so I, this is my construction of Rawls, and you sort of, as it were, my, my answer that is, is that, well, gee, there's too much pluralism here. Uh, <clears throat> Rawls is, and you're suggesting, well, but look, in, in democratic societies, Rawls says, we just have to, we just treat them like disease, right? That's, which John reminds me, which is to prevent them from spreading. Yeah, right. And it's, it's well, and, and that's a, that's a hell of a way to talk about human beings. I mean, you know. especially if you accept the burden of judgment. <laughs> well, we know they're right. You know? Yeah. 
Yeah, and that's why I like the I like the roles of, of the law of peoples in this respect because in the law of peoples he it seems to me acknowledges that the um, that these that the burdens of judgment really extend as far as the questioning of liberal principles themselves. And he um, uh, acknowledges that this is a uh, that, that even if these positions aren't reasonable, he says they're not, they're not unreasonable. Mm-hmm. And then he says there has to be a space between the fully reasonable and the unreasonable. He so dances around this thing because he, he's, he's struggling with that very question that you're answering, that you're, you're posing. I think because it's also it's terribly important that people be attached to their own values and to their own way of life, and that and there's and he. Uh, so the, he thinks that there's a very serious moral uh, onus on us not to impose a, a, a different way of life, not to coerce them. And that's, but that's tied up, of course, with the, with the fact that he also thinks that these people constitute societies that have a certain integrity and cultural, um, uh, well, integrity to them, and that there is no global basic structure. What get, makes it reasonable, what makes it necessary for us to coerce the unreasonable in America today, in our society, which is the fact that we are necessarily caught up in these relationships of interdependence that determine our fundamental life chances, raising these claims of justice. And so the only basis upon which we can go forward uh, is the basis of some kind of reciprocity mutuality and the only and given the widespread acceptance of values of freedom and equality within our society the uh, whole structure of the original position and so on and so forth becomes a structure that can impartially determine what these kinds of things are and under these circumstances it's reasonable to coerce the unreasonable but in the world as a whole for Rawls it's not reasonable to coerce the unreasonable because there's no basic structure that you don't have to do it and um, uh, and and there is a value to the integrity so of the two responses are really tied to each other. So <laughs> yeah. we, in we really don't thinking. buy his, his um, description of the nature of power relations in international civil society that the too much pluralism argument doesn't hold so much value. Well, yeah, then the, then the too much pluralism argument comes up against uh, is not, I mean, it's, it's then, then the kind of question that you're raising about that argument. See, I would, it seems to me that the, um, the, the problem in those, in the situation, this, this comes to the question I sort of posed at the end of the paper, when you have radical disagreement, and therefore the whole idea of starting with the idea of social cooperation and trying to derive principles of justice, if, that, if the set of principles that everybody can buy into is empty, and therefore you can't in fact have a a, um, a, uh, a cooperative arrangement among these people, then under, what do you do under those kinds of circumstances? And it would seem that under those sorts of circumstances, the, the kind of approach that Rawls is taking, that I've imputed to Rawls here, of, of focusing on, uh, on the idea of justice as following from the notion of social cooperation, begins to break down. And uh, um, I'm not sure 
how where to go from that. I think the answer has to be that that you try to find out what is the most reasonable, that is the, the, the basis that can incorporate as large a number of, peop of people as possible and that provides a, a, a trajectory that, sh that you think would, would track to a world where more and more people would come to accept those kinds of principles and therefore you could justify coercing these people uh, but your justification for coercing them is going to have to be different from the kind of justification that somebody operating out of a comprehensive view. You can't say these people are simply evil. These people are simply wrong. You have to say, we, I can't see how we could ever make a, a decent world uh, incorporating those kinds of doctrines. And therefore, we have to coerce them. But we have to do that with a certain kind of humility, recognizing that that. Uh, that they have a moral claim that we are overriding, but we're not showing to be wrong. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's that? I do want to say something about the basic structure argument, which is certainly true that the <coughs> the international political economy, the regime, to use you know the the kind of language that uh, that uh, political economists would be uh, comfortable with, um, clearly does distribute benefits and burdens. The question is, is at what level or how much distribution of benefits and burdens does it have to have before it becomes a basic structure? And it's not clear to me that Rawls isn't right, that, uh, the, that the fundamental determinants of how well countries do are a function of the institutions and practices internal to those countries themselves. I mean, I'm impressed, and, you know, this is naive, you know, what do I know? I'm not, a, I don't know any facts, I'm a theorist, right? Mm -hmm. I'm impressed by the fact that in 1992, India changes its economic policies and goes from, you know, from to the Hindu rate of growth, I mean, you know, it's basically a, a system of stagnation to, to a system where you get seriously compounding uh, rates of per capita economic growth. Uh, that China adopts a, a, a different system in the 1970s and begins doubling its economic production every, you know, nine years or, or, or whatever. And that, you know, the latest intelligence estimates that I was hearing about on NPR yesterday say that the next 15 years are going to see the emergence of a fundamentally changed world because India and China are suddenly going to become major, major powers with the world's second and, and fifth, fourth largest economies. These, it's, it, I'm not sure, I mean, maybe maybe that's true for India and China, maybe it's not true for uh, Lesotho or, or for, you know, very small countries and so forth. I mean, but I think that there's a, a more complicated uh, picture here. Certainly, the level of economic well-being and, and growth tends to be highly correlated with people, with countries' participation. In the, uh, uh, in the world economy. It's the countries that are the poorest, that are the most deprived, are the countries that have the least involvement in general in the uh, uh, international political economy. So uh, it's not, well, I don't want to strongly endorse Rawls' argument here. I, I don't want, I don't think it, it's, it's that easily dismissed. And I don't want to not watch again, aren't you ignoring or bracketing the most fundamental basic structure, which is the structure of mutual recognition of sovereignty that produces the countries that you're taking as given in your argument in the first place. And without that mutual recognition of sovereignty, they wouldn't be able to talk about founded communities in the first place. And isn't that actually a very deep structure at the international level that everybody agrees on? 
but it itself produces inequalities of various kinds. Well, it, it, it produces inequalities. Does it produce inequalities, or is it a related? Pardon me. Or is produced by inequalities? Yeah, I mean that. I mean certainly it's some of these boundaries are a result of forms of colonial oppression and so forth that involve violations of the principles of international justice. Uh, once again, which, you know, not to move between this idea of a sort of perfect full compliance theory and, and non-ideal theory, we clearly in the world that we live in today, there is no, there's not much distinction, it seems to me, between the kinds of foreign policies that would be prescribed by strong moral cosmopolitanism and the kinds of foreign policies that would be prescribed, prescribed by a Rawlsian view, because the world that we live in today is unjust on either account. And we have obligations to assist burdened societies, to open up opportunities for these societies to improve their uh, economic lots on, on Wallace's theory, because these are fundamental human rights claims. Uh, and so our European common agricultural policy seems to be most blatantly unjust. Our, uh, <coughs> policies of subsidizing sugar and cotton farmers and so on and so forth just blatantly violates the rules of, of Rawls' kind of system. So uh, uh, certain you know, structures, certain kinds of policies uh, uh, that, uh, you know, invading Iraq, I mean, <laughs> all kinds of things that, just, that Rawls doesn't have to apologize for in the world today. I mean, that, and that his theory actually gives us the grounds for condemning. So the issue, I think, comes up is, is there a case for re global redistributive uh, justice between the United States and Portugal more than between the, uh, between the United States and, and, and Mexico? This is, you, you go back, Aaron. Yeah. Yeah, Mike, uh, uh, one of the chief reasons for inequality is, is lousy governments in many countries. So the logic would be that you want to go in and replace the main cause is not the fact that you know your farm price supports and so forth, but the yeah. fact that they're incredibly poor because the governments are so bad. So logically, what you have to do is remove them. Yeah, that's Brian Barry. I mean, some strong cosmopolitans, you know, draw that conclusion. You want to say, well, you know, we we try we try that from time to time. It's not clear that we actually improve the governments when we do it. But well, you're using a practical argument that seems out of character here. Well, no, but no, it's, it is non. This is we're ta clearly talking about non-compliance theory, right? I mean, that's that is. I mean, if we think about the our relation, yeah, the our relationship to Haiti over the last 40 years, in which the United States has has acted in ways. Sometimes rationalized on the grounds that it's the problems here are about problems of bad governance. We will go in and do something to fix those kinds of problems. It's the it's given the fact given the fact that you this is we're, this argument is clearly made in a non-compliance world in a in a non-ideal world, and therefore consequential considerations have to figure largely in the justification of its policies. Does it, in fact, work to do that? How would it work? What, why is East Timor different from uh, Haiti and so forth? Well, it presumably would work if you colonized yeah, Well... Maybe not Puerto Rico, at least. I don't know. <laughs> well, you mean... Oh, they, they, don't do it, they don't do it. They do it 
half-heartedly. They don't do it long enough. <laughs> right. The government creeps back in and destroys the society once again. Or yeah, well, what, what, or the leaders loot it. Yeah, or we suspect that actually America's policy might not have been consistently governed by this ideal of helping the Haitians. Well, it's inconsistent in the sense it doesn't do it right, which would be to take over completely and get rid of the thugs who are looting the country. And it doesn't do that. It tries to work with governments that are looting the country. Yeah, like well, Mobutu Congo, pardon me? Like Mobutu and Zaire. Yeah, but in all of these cases, I don't, I mean, I don't, this is, this is sort of outside the theory of, uh, you know, but in all of these cases, the reason for doing this has to do with advancing American foreign policy aims in the world and uh, in terms of our, you know, Mobutu and Zaire, in terms of the, con or the contestation of the Soviet Union and not with dealing with the needs of the Congolese people. I mean, it certainly seems to me in, in, in Haiti that would be the case. It's hard to see any value of Haiti at all except humanitarian. Well, and again, preventing huge migration flows from Haiti to, into, you know, that's, I think that's, that certainly was a major factor in the Clinton administration's decision to support the uh, displacement of the... Of one but anyway, the, the way to solve the problem would be basically to do it, I mean, whatever the motives are, uh, they've got that number previously, but basically to solve the problem, you have to go in and take out the government and replace it with something that's better. But and that they, they supposes that, that's in, that that in fact would work, and I, I think that the historical record on that is not, you know, and it doesn't give you a lot of reason to think it would. Can, can you just invert that? Um, if in fact the historical record suggests that when you go in and try to change things, you don't in fact improve people's lot in life, and perhaps these societies are malgoverned because they are poor and unequal, and they're not poor and unequal because they are malgoverned, and the solution is in fact far simpler, make them wealthy, and they will become malgoverned, and that we can do without invading. Well, the question is, is can you make them wealthy? Uh, I mean, it may be a... a During poverty, it's easy. It just requires well, Not if the government steals it all. <laughs> you mean, you know, just send airplanes, seat the one thirties, and open with... Dropping dollar bills. I mean, social respect. No, I mean the pro the you argument. You could make an argument that transferring vast sums of wealth would create middle classes that would lead to demand that would lead to political improvement, and without such improvement, you will never get good governance. And it's precisely yeah. the absence of a social structure that comes with wealth. Or you could use some money to get the government steal. This is what happened Um I don't, it sounds like you don't want to talk about it too much, or maybe, uh, you know, quite reasonably is the second one. But I'm really interested in this, what do we do when we can't have justice question? And I think that it's it's really crucial for a couple of reasons. One is that I think you, I, I, I thought you made interesting arguments about China and India, but certainly there's now pretty significant distribution of benefits and burdens um, in, the, in you know, the global political economy that seems to be increasing. And even if you don't necessarily think that it constitutes a basic structure, just at an intuitive level, there seems to be something very peculiar about the precipitous drop-off in our obligations um, uh, domestically and internationally. Um, that's, it, that, that makes it really massively crucial to determine exactly where that, uh, that being a basic structure is, in that we go from Rawls thinking it more morally arbitrary that you're born with the ability to try hard I mean, this is practically maximal egalitarianism, despite Cohen, right? Mm -hmm. um, down to we're going to keep them alive. I mean, this, this is just 
a gaping drop in our moral obligations that seems to be out of whack with the proportion of our lives determined by domestic policy versus, say, um, yeah, justice yeah, issues. Yeah. In, in well, I guess but I would close that gap partly with the answer I made to Right, to Marcus. Yeah, no, 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 yeah. That, that was an interesting yeah, I think I think the, sta the human rights standards... So subsistence is a really bad word here. Um, I think so. Yeah, and I don't know, and once again, Rawls doesn't say anything about where those human rights standards come from, but the only way that I can make sense of the argument is to assume that it's tied to this idea of cooperation and therefore tied to this idea of some notion of agency, and that's why I get a higher, so that they, sure. I would narrow that gap. Yeah, but there's still, I think there's still a remaining problem. The remaining problem is that I think you can make an interesting, sort of interesting, strong case. George Klaskos did a whole book on it, that actually um, there's nothing even approaching um, the, 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 the political liberal consensus um, that Rawls think, thinks obtains, say, in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, if that's, that 40% of the population would you just be intransigently against, against political liberalism as he conceives it. And if that's the case, then we're on something sort of like the model of not being able to have justice at the international level, um, which makes it really, really interesting <laughs> and important to think through whether our obligations plummet the same way um, uh, they do internationally if we have that situation domestically. It seems it would put enormous pressure on thinking through an alternative conception of, of social justice. If, if you buy his argument, maybe you don't. But <coughs> well, I, I, let, me re let me see if I understand you by rephrasing it, okay, which is that I suggested that if there were a global basic structure, then we're done for because the pluralism at the, at the world level is so great that we wouldn't be able to find uh, a set of principles that could regulate that global structure that would make it a cooperative or make the world as a whole well-ordered society. Right. And I hear in the second part of your question, you saying, yeah, but if we look at something like Klosko, when we look at the survey research on people's attitudes about a whole variety of things that Rawls assumes that there's consensus on, uh, we see that that's actually the case at the domestic level, too. That they're barely liberals, much less ambitious, redistributive liberals. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, you see, I, th I, think it's, I think it's certainly true that, <laughs> obviously, in the United States, there's... Um, not a lot of support for Rawlsian uh, <laughs> redistribution. In fact, you know, if I were to make an argument along Cohen's lines, I, w I would actually draw on a Hayek uh, makes an interesting argument in the Mirage of Social Justice in which he talks about the sort of moral paradox that capitalism is always faced with that we learn our moral orientations in face-to-face -face relationships, in small groups and in families and so on and so forth. And we expect, therefore, that what happens to you should be justified, that you should deserve what you get. And so when we enter into capitalist or market relationships, we, ex we bring the same moral expectations with us. But of course, capitalism doesn't give people what they deserve. It has nothing to do, your rewards under capitalism have nothing to do with dessert. And it takes a certain kind of intellectual leap to understand how, to use Hayek's uh, language, how the great society works, and therefore to understand why it's morally justified, even though it flouts these fundamental moral sensibilities and moral intuitions that we come up with. And Hayek thought that this was always going to be a standing 
um, threat to capitalism because people were going to be uh, attracted to political movements, namely socialist or welfare state movements. They would try to restore desert to economic uh, relationships and therefore would subvert the great society and therefore make everybody take us to the road to serfdom and so on and so forth. You almost seems to be looking at American political development in the last 20 years. I think it's the opposite. It goes the other way around. People think that capitalism gives you what they deserve, and therefore they support ridiculous policies like, you know, ab abolishing estate taxes, even though lots of the money in the estate is capital gains that are unrealized and therefore have never actually been taxed at all, <laughs> and be, to allow those to be passed on to other people. Um, because their conception of justice is corrupted by their the opacity of social relationships in a complex society of this sort. So yeah, so there, there, there's, um, there's clearly in the United States not support for the uh, the difference principle or the idea that social institutions should be designed in this kind of way. But I don't think that's really what Rawls's argument is. Rawls's argument is that the um, there, that the basic moral ideals underlying our society are subject to a fairly high level of consensus. The idea that society should be a system of, of mutual cooperation, mutual benefit over the course of uh, a complete life, that people are inherently free and equal and so forth, and that those ideas underlie the acceptability of an impartialist procedure like the original position as a structure through which principles of justice could be <coughs> determined and thus provide the basis for legitimating as these kinds of ideas and thus a sort of a, an educational slash cultural slash political program for our society that could bring us into a more uh, just arrangements. So, and the problem is then you can say, well, why don't we just have a global original position? And Rawls, I think, it, you know, to his credit, says, look, the idea of a global original position, in effect, begs the question in favor of liberalism. The question is, is why would people accept this kind of procedure, or this kind of structure, through which to generate principles of justice? They would accept it only because they accepted certain fundamental moral intuitions, like the idea that people are free and equal, like the idea that society ought to be you know, system of ongoing system of mutual cooperation and so forth. And where those ideas are rejected, then people can reasonably reject the idea of the original position as a structure through which to generate principles of justice. So I think the, that's how we would try to distinguish those two cases. And this, once again, shows the situated and contextual character of the argument that Rawls is making. To avoid the embarrassment of cutting off discussion after I get my question answered, I'm going to uh, uh, allow uh, one more question, even though we're, we're well, there, running a little long. There, there are questions from people who are got faculty. Yeah. Uh, well, whatever. We're, 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 there's going to be a reception afterwards, so people can get to talk to those who are Right. But in that case, I was wondering why the Rawls acknowledged 
the presence of organ societies and in this uh, in the law of peoples. Um, and what is if those types of issues don't arise? Um, mass um, inequalities that, that uh, give rise to things like uh, or to immigration, then then what is what is the point of acknowledging burden society? And um, also on the point of sovereignty, I was thinking I kind of thought about it in the opposite way that um, when you say that uh, that, that because there is no global um, basic structure, it, yeah, <coughs> there's no global basic structure, um, then it's very difficult, and because of moral pluralism, it's very difficult to uh, to have a uh, well-ordered global society, or it be nearly impossible. And in that case, um, it's Rawls's idea of, of Rawls doesn't talk explicitly about sovereignty, but implicitly, because we may have these, and I feel very a well-ordered society over here, and why we're here, but, and and a decent society here. Is that sort of an, an implicit sovereignty? And and because these these societies, because they can establish a well, because they are well-ordered, does that keep them from being able to establish a global well-ordered society? Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, the answer, yes, it does. Bec and it's, but that's also assumes that the concept of society is tied to this concept of a basic structure. What makes you a society is the fact that you share a basic structure. So the idea is, is that as long as there are all these, you know, decentralized units in the world that have their own system of institutions that are basically determining the life chances of the people who are subjected to those institutions, then there is no basis for a global, well-ordered society because there is no global society because there is no global basic structure. Uh, um, so that's... <coughs> and, and the law of peoples does endorse... Uh, the issue, but sovereignty does endorse at least some of the traditional powers of sovereignty. And one of the principles of the law of peoples is that is the right of, um, of freedom from interfering, the obligation not to interfere in the internal affairs of other countries. That's, a, that's one of the traditional rights of sovereignty, so Westphalian sovereignty. So uh, Rawls wants to deny that societies have some of the other traditional rights of sovereignty, the right to do anything to their own people. He says that states have to respect uh, the fundamental system of human rights, and they don't have any right to use force outside of their own borders, except in self-defense. So some of the rights of some of the rights of sovereignty, Rawls, of the traditional rights of sovereignty, Rawls would endorse, but others he would not. Okay, does that answer that part of the? Yeah, I guess what I, well, what I was getting at is, is, it would be such a shame if, because these people, we don't talk about states, but people were able to establish a well-ordered society, and there were multiple ones, because they were be able to establish that, it would be a shame that they couldn't, that 
that was what was keeping them from coming together to establish this movement. What would yeah, I, <coughs> does that make sense? Yeah, but why is it a shame? Why is it if once again this we're we're, we're you know closest argument is, is that there is a the economic forces that are operating in the world as a whole are so powerful <coughs> that that there is a global um, structure of global interdependence that does profoundly affect people's lives. Uh, but if that's not the case, then why should we want to have a, a global society that functions at the level of individuals? There is a sort of international society that's made up of different, the society of states, or the society of peoples. And that society is well-ordered in the sense that it has, it shares principles of justice. Is they have amicable relationships. It's a cooperative structure. And that's, it's peaceful, they don't fight each other. And so, once again, we're talking full compliance theory, ideal theory, right? Um, wh why is that pluralist vision not a happy vision? Well, it's fine if you have all world-ordered societies, right. right? But since world acknowledges that there are decent and burdened societies out there. Okay, well, first of all, decent societies are also well-ordered. Yeah, okay. it's okay. the burden yeah. ones, yeah. And in and that's right. So, yeah, okay. And that's that's the key thing. Once again, I said a few minutes ago that the difference between, say, <coughs> um, Bites, you know, Chuck Bites or, <coughs> or Brian Berry, the moral cosmopolitans, and Rawls in terms of what needs to be done in the world that we live in, I don't think was, is really that great. I think a lot of the appeal of the cosmopolitan position is is the obvious and stark injustice that exists in a world where there are people who are deprived of the fundamental goods to any kind of, any conception of a decent life. When we look at, you know, I, mean, I don't know, the first time I traveled to a third world country was just the most, you know, excruciating experience to see that kind of poverty. Just, it's, that's manifestly and obviously unjust. And it's unjust for Rawls. It's not unjust because of, it violates principles of global distributive justice. It violates principles of fundamental human rights. And so uh, policies should be adopted in order to bring about the end of all burdened societies uh, insofar as we can do it. Now, there's tricks in doing it. I mean, it's not, this is, this is, it's, it's not obvious that we have policies that could, that could affect that. But that's clearly an obligation that we have. So in the... In a full compliance world, there would not be any burden societies. Rawls introduces those only to acknowledge that our world is not an ideal world, and therefore to think about what kinds of policies need to be adopted here in order to move us into this world. But what he's trying to just argue is that in this ideal world, there would be separate states. And that is a difference uh, in terms of, of the goals of the cosmopolitans and the Rawlsians, uh, their ultimate goals, but not a difference in terms of... of of what you need to do in the here and now for the next hundred years or so. Does that make sense? Is that yeah. Okay, I want to thank all of you for coming, and especially Don Moon, for a very stimulating uh, presentation and discussion. Thank you. I invite you to food and drink uh, outside, and I'm sure a person would be happy to uh, continue discussing some of these issues with people uh, after you get their refreshment. Yeah. Um, it was in on the table when we came in. I don't know who was the one. <laughs>
It was on, like I said, it was on the table when we came in. Okay. I can hold on to it. If you don't want it, there's some emails I could get. Okay, very good. Thank you very much. Great.